What is Christmas really about? Well, today, Julie kicks off our Christmas series, The Skinny on Christmas, and she explores God's gifts and how your life can reflect them. That's today here on the Vineyard Church Podcast. Well, I hope you heard what that little girl said at the end. The new baby is going to change the world. So Merry Christmas. You know, this is such a great reminder, this little video, both of what Christmas really is all about. And it's a good reminder that we can so often go through this whole season and never take time to really understand what that night that we've decided to call Christmas, what it was really like. You know, we can get caught up in the holiday, the shopping, the Christmas tree, the lights, the decorations, Santa, elves, the food, the movies, and we can sort of go through this holiday and it just becomes a thing that we do. And for some of us, you know, this is a lot of fun. We enjoy this and we do know the real meaning of Christmas and it really is the most wonderful time of the year. But for others of us, this is sort of the most unwonderful time of the year. You know, Christmas can be a really difficult time for so many people. You know, a lot of people basically kind of go into debt to have Christmas, and then that just leads to stress and anxiety. There are other people who know they're going to have to navigate certain family relationships every Christmas, and that can create anxiety and turmoil. And, you know, counselors tell us that for people who are already dealing with grief, loneliness, sadness, and depression, that the holiday season can really highlight these and make this really a dark time that joy and peace can sort of become elusive. You can wake up on December 26th and think, man, I'm so glad I got through that. I'm so glad I have 12 months before I have to do that again. And so today, and really for the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at what this event called Christmas is really like. We want to take a look at how it is so much better than the holiday that we've made it in to be, that it was a miracle and that it has has a gift in it that is really for each one of us. So as the kids in the video explained, Christmas was, of course, when Jesus was born. And at the core of the reasons he came, we have Christmas um, because God had been separated from his people by this condition called sin. And for thousands of years, God offered ways to deal with this separation. But humanity, people, us, we couldn't keep up and we couldn't meet any of these conditions. And so to put it very simply, God sent Jesus to take away the sin issue. But God also sent him to give us something really good in the process, a desperately needed gift. And it was offered immediately after Jesus was born on that first Christmas. And I want to share just a way to say this really simply that might make it easier to remember. The gift of God's glory offered us the present of God's peace. So we're going to start in the book of Luke chapter two. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Starting in verse one, it says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And then the scene kind of shifts and we hear this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And that was a very normal thing. 
But then a very abnormal thing happens. And we read in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now I want to pause a minute. Again, we want to do our best to try to see what this was really like. And these shepherds, they were used to being out at night. They watched over their animals. They protected them. They were used to fighting off, you know, unexpected predators. They were probably pretty tough guys. They weren't easily scared. However, these angels of God are not like these chubby hallmark angels we usually see. Angels of God are his messengers and often his mighty warriors. And it says these shepherds weren't just surprised. They were terrified. And we go on and in verse 10, it says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will be, that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. And I don't know, I've, I've had a lot of birth announcements sent to me over time, but I'll tell you what, this is a heck of a birth announcement, right? I mean, this is amazing. And so the angel is very specific and what he just said would have been as astounding to them as his presence was. Because see, most likely these shepherds at this location, this time of year, were shepherds tasked with taking care of the lambs that would be used as Passover sacrifices. And a lamb as a Passover sacrifice was one of the ways that at that time the people were trying to deal with that sin issue that I mentioned earlier. Because the cost of sin was the death of a life. And so God's people would have to get these perfect little lambs with no blemishes, at a particular time and offer it as a perfect life to pay for their imperfect life of sin. And these guys would have known that the prophets of the Old Testament, which was their version of the Bible at the time, that they had said there would be a savior someday, that they would call Messiah, that he would somehow free them from their sins. And even in addition to that, he would free them from the oppression of the Romans. He would save them. He would be powerful. He'd be mighty. He'd end up being the king of the Jews. So when this angel says the Messiah has been born, this was huge news. And the angel goes on and says in verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Again, very specific and again, astounding because, see, shepherds were looked down upon in their society. They were kind of at the bottom of the heap. Their home was made out in these fields where they kept their sheep. And because of this, it was a dirty job. And they were considered too dirty to enter the temple. They were often considered untrustworthy, even irreligious. But now this messenger of God has just told them they're going to find this king child in a feeding trough, a manger, something that was very base and a very common part of their lives. So from their perspective, they were probably thinking, how could a king child be born in that kind of a setting, in a place where shepherds would even be welcome? And this angel's announcement seems to just contradict everything that they would have heard this Messiah would be. Basically, this angel is describing this newborn peasant boy, but even worse, put in a manger. This would not have sounded like the arrival of this king. But then, as they're probably trying to process this, maybe even looking at each other going, are you hearing and seeing what I'm hearing and seeing? Suddenly, this vision gets bigger. This one huge, terrifying angel is suddenly joined by a ton of other angels. And we pick up in verse 13, it says, And suddenly there was an was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. And this term host here means a huge number, like an army. 
And we're told in the Bible that God's angels are basically innumerable. They're tens of thousands of his angels. In fact, in both Deuteronomy, which is the Old Testament, and Hebrews in the New Testament, we read this, that when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In other words, it's likely that most or all of God's angels showed up that night because of this announcement. And then that, that like all of heaven was so excited, was rejoicing so much, they couldn't contain their joy and their glory. And they broke through this thin barrier that our human eyes can't usually see. And the shepherds got to look in, a glimpse in to heaven. And I hope you're beginning to see what an incredible night this was that we call Christmas. And then listen to what they said. Luke goes on in verse 13, and suddenly um, there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, men means all people, men and women. But he said, glory, they said, glory to God and on earth peace. And we begin to see God's glory and the present of his peace unfold. So hang on to that thought. We're going to finish this little part of what's going on. In verse 15, it says, when the angels have left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And I want us just to take note of this. You know, Luke is writing this years later, and what the shepherds said is still remembered. And remember, these shepherds at the time, they were insignificant. They were considered unworthy, actually, of even offering a legal testimony in court, yet they spread the word. And the angels had told them about the baby, who they were going to be directed to, who they found, and all who heard their testimony were amazed. And it's still talked about today. It's celebrated today by people who don't even know this is what they're celebrating when they put up that Christmas tree or their Christmas lights. And I was, as I was thinking about this this week, it really hit me. It kind of actually overwhelmed me a little bit. This thought that the testimony of those who the world judged to be insignificant was exactly who God chose to give the most significant testimony to the world. You know, if you ever feel small or insignificant, like you you don't measure up to the standards of someone or the, the who, who the world says you ought to be, remember this. This is so often who God chooses to involve. Common people who have time to hear him and simply follow his lead. So we read on about how these guys ended their night. It says this, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So this is the setting of this night that's unfolding that today we call Christmas. And think about it, only Mary, Joseph, some shepherds and some townspeople who were willing to listen to the shepherds were there. That was it. I mean, you, you might be picturing, well, wait a minute, I've got some wise men, you know, my testimony at home. The wise men don't show up for a couple of years, guys. 
It was really just these few people that knew that Christmas was happening. And again, they didn't know that that's what was happening. But literally thousands of years later today, the entire world has made this the biggest holiday, the biggest reason to celebrate. So with this framework, we're going to take a closer look at the significance of what that, those, that host of angels said on that night when they announced Christmas. You know, we don't often think about this part of the story. We think about the, the single angel and what he said. But if heaven opens up for a brief few minutes, God's army is there and they have something to say to regular people and they, those regular people get this glimpse in. It seems like these mighty messengers of God had something to say that is so worth our taking a few minutes to consider. So looking at uh, Luke 2, starting in verse 13, we're going to read this again. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Now, you know, well, Christmas may be a dark time for some of us, as, as I mentioned earlier, that original Christmas happened at a very dark time in the history of Israel, God's people. There was unrest in the world. Rome had significant control over God's people. The fact that Mary and Joseph had to just up and leave and fund a trip to his hometown to, to meet the requirements of the census by Rome. The government was just very oppressive. They were brutal. It was actually a murderous government. And on top of this for the Jews, there had been no prophet of God for over 400 years. You can read about this time, but it was a very dark time. And then these angels, they show up and they break into this darkness and not with just a little tiny light, but with the glory of the Lord. And we don't talk about glory much, do we? You know, I mean, what is glory? Well, glory is really too big to completely define, but we're going to take a stab at it today for a little bit. When you look at the Hebrew and Greek definitions, it tends to mean weight, power, majesty, might, awesomeness that... And that, now this is the key, catch this part, that comes from within reflecting out in the appearance of splendor, brightness, or radiance. And throughout the Bible, God's glory is mainly referred to as his presence, him being present. It's at the heart of what God wants to communicate to us. It's over and over in the Bible talking about his glory. See, God has revealed his glory to all mankind through what we would call common grace, primarily through his creation. Paul puts it this way when he wrote the book of Romans in the very first chapter, he writes, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made so that people are without excuse. God makes himself known to anyone willing to look around his creation and give him some attention and listen. But God also reveals his glory to his people, his children, through what's called special grace. Now, over this past year, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we've talked about this before, God making himself present, showing himself and his glory through what can be called a theophany, an appearance of God as uh, to a human in a divine manifestation. Now, God's glory was so great and so powerful, if you read about it, we know that he had to mask it because if he couldn't, if he didn't take on an earthly form of some sort, it was so powerful that it could actually kill someone. So he had to veil 
his glory so that people could, could withstand it. And this became so common, so foundational to the Jewish people and to their life that the Hebrew people named it God's Shekinah glory. And it's defined like this. The word Shekinah is a Hebrew term meaning dwelling or one who dwells. And Shekinah glory is a visible manifestation of God on earth whose presence is portrayed through a natural occurrence. And in our Genesis series, we saw this in the life of Abraham back in chapter 15. God takes the form of a flame and a smoking pot, and he passes through his sacrifices. He makes a covenant with Abraham. And then as you read through the Old Testament, you see this over and over. There's a burning bush at one time, and God speaks out of that bush to Moses, but the bush isn't consumed. This is God's Shekinah glory. We see the Shekinah glory of God come as a, as a pillar um, of fire at night and, and a cloud by day as God leads his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Then when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, again, we see God's Shekinah glory come down as this massive cloud and fire. At this point, Moses actually goes into it and he spends 40 days with God. And when he comes down, his face is so bright and shining from being in the presence of God's glory. He doesn't realize it, but his, his brother Aaron does. And they won't even look at him until Moses puts a veil over his face because they fear that even the reflection of God's glory might kill them. And then we keep going in the book of Leviticus. We read about this time in Leviticus 9. It says, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell down. Again, this was God's Shekinah glory. And then when the people of God set up the tabernacle, which was kind of like the first portable church, they set up this tabernacle in the wilderness God's glory comes over the tabernacle in the presence of a cloud. And again, the people recognize this as his, as his protection and his glory. When Solomon builds the temple in 1 Kings, we read this in chapter 8. When the priests left the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And the priests were unable to carry out their duties be, due to the cloud because the Lord's glory filled the Lord's temple. See, God was continually offering his glory to his people. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your heritage. This is why it's so important to understand. But throughout all these years, as he's offering his glory to his people, God's people would then turn against him. The Shekinah glory would leave. Then a leader who loved God would step in, the people would repent, and God's glory, his presence would return. And this was happening over and over until at one point in time, the people rebel and the glory of God is removed. When my sister was a, a little girl, she one time had this cookie sitting in her high chair, and she's banging it on her high chair. My mom said, hey, stop banging your cookie. You're going to make a mess. And she said, okay. And she started banging her cookie again. My mom, stop banging your cookie. Okay. And then she started banging it again. She's making a mess. My mom said, if you bang it one more time, I'm going to take that cookie. And my sister thought about it. She looked at her. She banged it and said, take it. And on a much larger scale, this is kind of what God's people did. And the Shekinah glory was removed, but this time it doesn't come back. The tabernacle is destroyed. God's people go into exile. And for hundreds of years, there's no sign of God's glory on earth. And then in the middle of this time, about 600 years before Christmas, one of God's prophets named Ezekiel is given this message. And like angels, prophets are often primarily mostly God's messengers. And so God gives Ezekiel a vision to share. 
He sees God's Shekinah glory, but it's different this time. It combines these past manifestations. It comes from heaven, there's fire, there's light, a cloud, but there's something new, something unlike any other time God's Shekinah glory has been seen. And so listen to this. In Ezekiel, first chapter, starting in verse 26, we read this. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And this time, for the first time ever, the Shekinah glory is seen in the form of a person. And the message that God is giving through Ezekiel is the next time the Shekinah glory of God comes to earth, it will be in the form of a person. And then hundreds of years go on and there's no theophany, no Shekinah glory. There's 400 years of darkness and silence from God until Christmas lights up the sky. Jesus is born. And the host of angels proclaims God's glory has arrived again, but this time in the form of a person, a baby who would become the king. Christmas was and is the fulfillment of God's plan for hundreds of years to bring his glory to the world in a way that we could access it. In Colossians 1.15, Paul says this, the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And John, at the very beginning of his letter, in John 1, he says, the word, which is a name for God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, remember, we're told in the Old Testament, no one could look directly at God's glory because it was so radiant, so powerful. You know, it's just too much for us. Yet at the same time, we need God's glory to live. In fact, the very first question, one of the most well-known methods of teaching the Bible truths is this. What is the chief end of man? What's the main thing about us? What is our primary purpose in these lives we live on this earth? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. However, Romans 3.23 reminds us, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the price that's to be paid is told to us in Romans 6.23. The wages, the cost of falling short of God's glory is death. Which is why those shepherds were keeping those perfect sheep. To be bought and given is perfect sacrifices for people to try so hard to be right with God, but it was never ending because we fall short and we continue to fall short of God's glory. But then Jesus arrives. He's born out there where those lambs were born and he brings with his birth the full glory of God. However, this time veiled in a human body so that we could see his glory directly to know his glory and not die. See, once Jesus arrived and the rest of the, the story kind of unfolds through the voices of the Bible, we read over and over things like what the author of the book of Hebrews states in the very first verse 
He writes this, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets like Ezekiel at many times and in various ways, such as the manifestations of the Shekinah glory. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. When John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, sees him walking towards him at one point in time, he just proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's so many verses like these where it's explained, Jesus was the final sacrifice. Lambs are no longer necessary. The shepherds on that first Christmas night, they were to care for lambs that would redeem the people. But that baby, that lamb that they went to see would redeem them. In Colossians, right after Paul says, the son is the image of the invisible God. He explains to us why this matters. He goes on and he says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself, to God, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And the by making peace, this is the key. See, Jesus is the final sacrificial lamb that would pay the price of our falling short of God's glory. And in so doing, he would offer us the gift of his glory and the present of his peace. Remember, the words of the host of angels to the shepherd that night were glory to God in the highest. And they could have stopped right there. They could have just kept saying glory to God in the highest, glory to God in the highest. But they didn't. They said, and on earth, peace. Because Christmas happened to provide peace between the God of all creation and us. And again, there's some irony in that night. Those shepherds were taking care of sheep so that God's people could take action to be at peace with God. But now, and this is huge, guys, this is huge. Now, all of heaven is announcing that God has taken action Final action to be at peace with his people. The gift of God's glory offers us the present of God's peace. Now I had seven more pages of notes on peace because it is so significant, but I narrowed it down to about six and a half. And um, this word peace, we translate, um, you know, it was originally Shalom in Hebrew and Irene in, in Greek. And these two really basically mean the exact same thing. However, it is not the same thing that we most often think of as peace in our culture. We think of peace primarily as, you know, the absence of disagreements and arguments. And, and when there's not war, we have peace. But Shalom and Irene have to do with the total well-being of a human, not just a lack of anxiety, but actually people start working together and pursue harmony. Actually, in classic Greek, it literally means that there are legal conditions that result in the blessing of prosperity. So shalom and irene can be defined kind of like this, peace and harmony, but more wholeness, safety, completeness, restoration, and human flourishing. And in the New Testament, this word is used almost synonymously with the idea of salvation through Christ. See, the reason those angels proclaim God's glory and his peace coming to earth was because in the person of Jesus, we find the fullness of the glory of God to restore 
our relationship with him. Not just remove sin, but to give us a fullness of knowing him. The peace of God is not something that we conjure up, that we do. Peace of God is something he gives us and we receive. When Jesus was in a conversation with his disciples, he said, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You know, Jesus was so clear, so honest. Yeah, you're going to have trouble in this world. You know, you're in this world that has sin. It can be hard, disappointing, unfair. But then Jesus also said this in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. And folks, we don't need more of what the world has to offer. We need what the God of glory has to offer. The present, the presence of his peace living in us. And it all started on that Christmas night. And if we belong to God, if we are his followers, we have these Christmas gifts, his glory, his peace accessible to us every day of the year. So how do we do this? How do we glorify God? How do we have his peace? Well, there are so many ways we can pursue this. I want to share just three. The first one is this, worship corporately. You know, this is an entire sermon on its own, to the whole idea of worship. But while we can and we ought to do everything in life with the mindset of worship, a mindset that honors God, there is value in corporate worship. Gathering as a church like we do on Sundays. We find something there that we don't find when we're alone. We see corporate worship valued throughout the entire Bible. We're told that Jesus, it was his regular habit to worship with others. And in Hebrews, we're told this, Hebrews 10, 24, and let us be concerned about one another. You got to be with people to be concerned about them in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other. See, when we come together in worship, it reminds us we are part of the larger kingdom of God that he is building for eternity. When we come together in worship, we're coming from different places, all these different backgrounds and circumstances and situations. Corporate church is probably the most diverse group on earth, yet all these differences don't matter when we come together as the body of Christ, and that is an incredible testimony of God's glory to the watching world. When we gather as one church, it also gives us a framework. It can help us to kind of recenter ourselves at the end of a week. It can prepare us to go into the next. Corporate worship is kind of like a sharpening tool for us. In fact, Charles Spurgeon offers this illustration of of someone using a scythe. That's a sharp curved tool that you can cut or mow grass with. And he says, you know, the person has this tool, but then they pause in their work, and they go find the sharpening stone, and they begin to sharpen their tool. And then he says this, is he wasting precious moments? How much he might have mowed while he'd been wringing out those notes on his scythe. But but he is sharpening his tool, and he will do far more once again when he gives his strength to those long sweeps which will lay the grass and rows before him. Because when we worship God corporately, he restores us. He offers us that peace. Second idea, use what God has given you 
to give glory to him. I've really been convicted about this recently, that I need to do this much more, to look for these opportunities. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So what if before you went into each day, you thought, well, my plans today glorify God. Well, how I do my job or study or train or compete glorify God. Well, how I talk to others, my spouse, my neighbors, my children, my coworkers, will it glorify God? Think of what opportunities or platforms God has given you. And then ask yourself, honestly, am I using those to glorify myself or to glorify God? I want to share just a few minutes, a couple minutes of, a, of an interview clip we're going to watch in a minute that's, that happened about three weeks ago. It's a, it was after a game, a football game between Ohio State and Indiana. And in this clip, you're going to see a receiver, Cameron Babb, and also one of their quarterbacks, um, C.J. Stroud. And Cam had had four ACL surgeries in the last number of years. And then this season, he thought he was ready to play, and he, he encountered another setback. But he finally gets into this, into this game. And Stroud makes a pass to him, and for the first time ever, Cam gets a catch and a touchdown. It was just this huge deal. And as a result of this, they have a platform. They get this interview. And I want you to hear just a little bit about what they had to say. You know, this goes on for like 17 minutes. And you know, sometimes you hear this, you know, some obligatory statement by a celebrity or an athlete where they say, I just want to give God the glory and I want to thank my mom, right? But guys, these guys start to sound like a broken record when you listen to it. They don't stop. They never miss an opportunity. And they're honest about it being tough. And did you hear what Cam said there? At the end, he said, we have such a big platform here at Ohio State to share what God has given us. And that's what he's using it for. Use what God has given you to give glory to him. And number three, choose. And I know it's a choice from personal experience. Choose to be thankful. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. And I think this is the toughest to do when something happens to us, a hard situation that we didn't choose. It's so hard. You know, there's a family that was part of our church for years until they moved down south to take a job and be near, near to some of their, their family. And their third child, Isaac, was born this past July. But before he was born, they found out he had a very rare heart condition, and he was going to require at least three open-heart surgeries after birth. And so they started looking for the best doctors and hospitals, and, and they actually had to, again, go out of the state they're living in now and move away for a short time so they could be at this hospital for Isaac to be born. And when they entered into this, they started a Caring Bridge page. It's kind of like a, a blog for situations like this. And after four months, last week, they were finally able to go home with Isaac. And this whole time, the dad, Travis, has been posting these blogs. But this time, Kelsey, the mom, posted for the first time. And I want to share with you what she posted about this experience. Here's what she said. After we found out about Isaac's diagnosis, I struggled to find peace, among a few other things. 
I knew that regardless of how much time we would have with Isaac, there were a few things that I wanted to make sure he felt. And focusing on peace, love, and joy throughout this time, I often thought about the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It was pointed out in a devotional that the peace of God, Philippians 4, 7, is constant and not temporary or conditional like worldly peace. The preceding verse says, in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I certainly like action steps, and my focus in prayer and thought became thanksgiving. I knew that I desperately needed the peace of God. As my awareness of things we had to be thankful for grew, I truly began to feel God's constant peace. And the way they've signed every post that they've put is this, our story, his glory. See, this is what Jesus wants for you when you belong to him. Your story to be his glory, for you to go through life with a peace that is otherworldly, that you almost can't understand understand is beyond your understanding. That Shekinah glory was in Jesus, but now, if you have given your life to him, if he is your savior, if he is your Lord, his glory lives in you. Second Corinthians, this is our last verse, 318 says, but all of us who are Christians have no veils on our faces, but reflect like mirrors the glory of the Lord. The life you live, your story is a reflection of God's glory. I really hope that over these 21 days left before Christmas, you will take time to think about Christmas, really what it was like. Because as much as I hope you enjoy this holiday, you know, Christmas didn't happen so we could have a holiday. Christmas happened so you and I could receive the gift of God's glory and the presence of his peace. Father God, I thank you so much. I do praise you and glorify you for being a God who went to such lengths so that we could stop trying to make peace with you and you took action to make peace with us. God, I pray that as we do approach the day that we celebrate your arrival here on earth, God, we would come to know more of who you are. We would come to know more of who we are in you. And God, we thank you for not withholding your glory and for giving us peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.